Hi, welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast, where we attempt to equip people for kingdom release. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Hey there, welcome to Vineyard Altoona. My name is Derek. I'm the co-senior pastor. Uh, and uh, before I jump in today to the message, I just want to make uh, make you aware of something. Uh, for those of you who've been listening to our messages uh, at home, we have, uh, over the course of the pandemic, been pre-recording the messages, uh, and then they get posted at 10.30 Eastern Time uh, each Sunday. Beginning in two weeks, that's August the 8th, uh, we're going to go back to recording our messages uh, during the Sunday worship gathering, which means uh, you'll still have them sometime on Sunday afternoon, but they won't uh, come up right at the 1030 time slot. So just want to make you aware of that. Uh, look forward to that change. You'll still get our messages. Uh, they'll just be uh, posted a little bit later on Sunday. So with that, I just want to jump in. And, uh, you know, in college, I took this class. Uh, and I think most universities have these classes. It's called Senior Seminar. And the purpose of Senior Seminar was to prepare you to enter the job market. You know, so uh, they had like mock interviews. They had how to write a resume. They had all kinds of uh, various events with the, the intent of uh, helping you enter the job market. One of the most fun parts of this class, by far, uh, for me, was they had an etiquette dinner. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to one of these. The purpose of an etiquette dinner is to teach you step-by-step how to eat in a really formal dining situation. So at this etiquette dinner, you had to dress up and you showed up with, you know, there were probably 80 people in the room and all these different tables. And they just walked you through a very formal dinner, you know, like in case you were going to be maybe at a job interview or something uh, where, where you... Uh, were forced to eat uh, with a, prote- a potential employer. And so one of the most surprising things uh, happened before there was any food served. So I showed up and everyone when they showed up was given a name tag to write their name on. And, and so after everyone arrived and got situated, the person running the event pointed out that almost everybody had already made a mistake. Apparently, after writing your name on a name tag and peeling the paper back off of the sticker, most people tend to use their right hand to stick the sticker on the left side of their chest. The actual right place to put the name tag is on the right side of your chest. And now, the reason for this is uh, because if you, uh, when you go to shake hands with somebody, They look at your hand to grab it, and then they follow your arm up to your name tag and then to your face. And so it makes it actually easier for people to to connect your name and your face. See, church, it's not only fun, but it's also educational, right? Uh, But here's the thing. I've been sticking name tags to myself for a lot of years, for a whole lot of years, right? And... Uh, When I discovered that the way I always did it was wrong, it started me off on a long journey that still is going of unlearning the wrong way 
in order to learn the right way. I still inherently want to take the sticker and stick it on the left side of my chest because I'm right-handed. Now listen, the same is true for us with the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus displays a kingdom that is so different than the way the world usually works that we all find ourselves on a journey of unlearning the wrong way in order to learn the right way. When we give our lives to Jesus, we begin this process of unlearning the wrong way to do life and learning the way the kingdom desires us to do life. And today we're going to look at a passage that forces us to unlearn what we thought we knew about how greatness works. We began this series a few weeks ago uh, on our third core value, we pursue wholeness with authenticity. And the first week I broke down what we mean when we say we pursue wholeness. So we, we pursue the kingdom of God. We, we pursue things the way they will be when God gets his way. And so we don't give up in, in, in creating wholeness when we're comfortable or we're satisfied. We continue to press forward to wholeness until the kingdom has come fully. And then the next week I talked about authenticity, that, that we are people who uh, don't make authenticity the goal. The kingdom of God is the goal, but authenticity defines how we do it, that we're people who acknowledge our shortcomings and our limitations. And last week I started this sort of two-part uh, sermon on uh, about how we go about pursuing the kingdom of God. That if we're pursuing wholeness with authenticity, if we're pursuing the kingdom of God in an authentic way, how do we go about beginning that pursuit? What do we do? What are the things we actually do? And I said, this is a two-part message. And last week I said that we have to begin by orienting ourselves appropriately to Jesus in worship. And so today I'm going to sort of pick up from there. If you, if you haven't listened to last week's message, you want to go grab it now. Uh, because I'm going to pick up from there. After we orient ourselves appropriately, we pursue the kingdom of God in service. Today, I'm calling the message, How Wholeness Comes, Service. So let's pray and then we'll turn to God's word. And so, Lord, I do just welcome you into this time. And God, as we dig into your word. As we, we look to Jesus for our direction, as we listen to the teaching of Jesus, God, would you help us to unlearn what it is that we believe we know about greatness and about service. Lord, I pray that we would hear the words of Jesus afresh and anew. And God, I pray that you would enable me to speak as I should, Lord, that you would put your words in my mouth. Would you come, Lord? Holy Spirit, would you fill me? In Jesus' name, amen. We can turn to uh, Mark 10, Mark 10, uh, and, that's, uh, and we're going to begin in verse 35. Mark 10, beginning in verse 35, and here's what we read. It says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him, that's Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. 
But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, no, no shock, when the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this, this passage of Scripture comes right in the middle of a section of the book of Mark where Jesus is flipping everything upside down. In the beginning of chapter 10, the Pharisees tell Jesus that, you know, Moses permitted divorce. And Jesus said, this is not God's desire, but it was only permitted because of their own hard hearts. So he turns their understanding of divorce upside down. Then when children were being brought to Jesus, the disciples tried hard to keep them away. Culture dictated that children should be seen and not heard. And yet Jesus not only permits them to come, but then he says, this is the kind of person who could enter the kingdom. That, that this is a model of what it looks like to be the kind of person who could enter the kingdom. And Jesus highly elevates children. Then, right after that, a rich man comes to follow Jesus, and instead of welcoming him, oh, you're rich, let me cater to you, uh, you know, you're someone of high value, Jesus tells him, go sell all your stuff, then follow me. And he says, it's hard to be rich and enter the kingdom. And then right after that, he flat out tells the disciples that Messiah, he, as the Messiah, is going to be disrespected and killed by the Gentiles. And of course, this is not what any Jewish person would have expected, that a Messiah is a conquering ruler. What do you mean he's going to be killed? And so all of this stuff, Jesus is turning everything upside down. And in all of this, the point Jesus is trying to make is that the kingdom of God doesn't work the way the world expects it to work. In verse 38, Jesus says, You do not know what you are asking. You see, James and John were fishermen. You know, they know how the world works. To be somebody in the world means you have power and you have people that serve you and cater to you. And in the first century world, if you are a fisherman... You're not someone who has a lot of potential for upward mobility, right? You're kind of low on the totem pole, and you're not really going to go up. But if you think about James and John, all of a sudden they find themselves called by this rabbi to follow him. And this rabbi now is talking about how he is the Jewish Messiah. This is the long-awaited character that's going to save Israel and kick out the occupying of force and, and reestablish God's rule and reign. And James and John now find themselves in a spot of opportunity. You know, they're in this inner circle 
on the leading edge of the revolution. And now, like never before, the possibility exists that James and John might find themselves as important people in the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. So you can imagine they see this opportunity that they never would have thought was a possibility. And yet here it is staring them in the face. And so, you know, they're apart from the 10, they're, they're close to Jesus. And they say, hey, you know, right now, before anything happens, we want you to do something for us. I want to be the vice president, make him the secretary of state. Have one of us sit at your right hand and one uh, on your left when you, your kingdom has come, when, you, when you're in your glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Like they're speaking different languages, right? They think they're sitting here thinking, okay, they're going to kick out the Romans and, and Jesus is going to be the king and we get seats of power. We're grasping at power. There's opportunity for upward mobility here. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Why not? Look at verse 42. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. Verse 43, but it is not so among you. Jesus says, my kingdom doesn't work the way you have grown to expect. The kingdom of God doesn't work the way we naturally expect it to work. It doesn't value the people we naturally think it should value. It doesn't value the things we naturally think it should value. Jesus says, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, you'll have life for eternity. It, things don't work in the kingdom the way that we think they ought to work. Those who the world would say don't have a whole lot of value. Children, Jesus says these have utmost value. The kingdom doesn't work the way that we expect it to work. And because the kingdom of God doesn't work the way the world expects, Jesus has to redefine greatness and success. And he does so in two ways. I want to just, uh, just take a look at both of these ways. The first way is in the kingdom... Greatness involves walking with Jesus in suffering. Look at verse 38. It says, But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. You know, the expectation is that Increasing greatness ought to result in an easier life, right? That's what we see in the world, right? Increasing greatness means greater life. You have more people serving you. Everybody's taking care of your stuff. Things go, the, you have money to pay for the things that you need. And in fact, that's what so much of prosperity teaching says. If you're getting further up the ladder in Christianity, it involves more comfort and less suffering. But here Jesus says no. When Jesus refers to the cup, what he's referring to is what the Old Testament calls the cup of God's wrath or the cup of suffering. So, for example, if you look at Jeremiah 25, it says this, For thus 
for thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all nations, all the nations to whom I send you, drink it. They shall drink and stagger and go out of their minds because of the sword that I am sending among them. Verse 17, So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. This is, this is the cup of God's wrath, the cup of suffering. And when Jesus refers to baptism, what he's referring to is death. So when he asks them if they can drink from the cup and be baptized with the baptism, what Jesus is asking essentially is, can you follow me into suffering and death? Will you follow me into suffering and death? And it, <laughs> it seems like they don't give it a whole lot of thought. They just say, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, we can do that. And so Jesus says, okay, well, then you will. But it isn't just James and John that this applies to. You see, everyone who follows Jesus is saying yes to suffering and death. I hope you know that's what you were saying yes to when you said yes to Jesus. It's why we, when we do baptism, that's what we're doing. We have water. We put you under the water, right? This is symbolic. You are dead. That's what's happening. And every step forward in the kingdom involves embracing suffering and being willing to surrender your life. I know in this country we don't face much opposition like that yet. But that's around the world. Christians understand that that's what's happening. When I sign up to follow Jesus, I'm signing up for suffering and death. Now, at a very broad level, we're all going to experience suffering, right? Whether we follow Jesus or not, we all experience it. Everyone everywhere experiences suffering sometime, right? You don't have to be a Christian to lose a job. You don't have to be a Christian uh, to lose a loved one or to experience infertility or to have an illness or to experience hunger or poverty. I mean, these things happen to people whether they follow Jesus or not. But when someone who is connected to Jesus experiences suffering, God uses that suffering to bring about the kingdom in the world. Let me explain. When you as a follower of Jesus experience the brokenness of this world, you experience the suffering of this world, God meets you in the midst of your suffering to bring healing and consolation. God gives you these things for your own situation, but everything God does to you, he intends to do through you. You see, when God meets you in healing and consolation, he actually gives you more than you need. He gives you healing and consolation for you, but he also gives you healing and consolation to give to someone else. And in this way, God brings his healing and consolation into the world in abundance. Listen, I'll tell you a story. There's this couple in Columbus uh, who were in our small group 
Uh, actually, it was, at the time, they were leading. Uh, so we were in their small group. Uh, but they had had a miscarriage some years before Jerry and I joined the group. And they talked about how devastating uh, that experience was uh, and, and really how uh, God walked with them and, and, and brought healing. But then when Jerry and I experienced the miscarriage of our own, this couple had not only received enough healing and consolation to walk through their miscarriage, but they had also had enough healing and consolation to give to us in our time of pain. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all consolation, who consoles us in all our affliction." so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. Friend, that's what Paul is saying. Whatever trauma the enemy throws at your life, the fact is, if you let him, God will use it to bring his abundant healing and consolation into the world. And in this way, your story becomes a testimony that God will use to help someone experience his healing and wholeness in their lives. Everyone's going to experience suffering. But in the kingdom, greatness involves walking with Jesus in suffering. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. In the kingdom, greatness is service. Look at verse 43. It says, But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, the expectation... Uh, for greatness is an ever-increasing number of people who serve you, right? Like if you think about uh, the people in this, this country or in this world that you would consider higher and higher levels of greatness, right? They've achieved a lot of things. And they all have their own full staffs of people and complement of people that take care of them, right? I mean, <laughs> just this last week, we watched Jeff Bezos, right? the former CEO of Amazon, he goes to, goes to space. And how many people existed to serve him so that he could ride a ship to space, right? That there's something about uh, greatness in the world that says that an ever-increasing number of people will serve you. But Jesus says, in the kingdom, if you want to be great, serve. If you want to be great, serve. You know, probably most of us are uh, familiar with uh, the way businesses are structured, right? That, that the higher in the organizational structure you get, the more people you have serving you. So you start at the bottom of the organizational chart, and a promotion means you have a certain number of people working for you. If you get another promotion, it means you have more people working for you. And so in the corporate world, the goal is to climb the corporate ladder, right? And each rung means more and more people work for you. More and more people serve you. It's upward mobility. And we know this is the way the world works. But Jesus says the kingdom works a different way. He says that in the kingdom, every promotion means you serve more people. You come into the kingdom as a new follower of Jesus, and everybody is serving you, right? 
Isn't that the way you all first came to church, right? We came to church because of how it served us, right? But Jesus doesn't intend for things to stay that way. This is actual, if you're constantly looking for a church that serves you, it's a sign of immature Christianity. It's a sign that you have not matured in following Jesus. Because the goal is not that you come to be served, but that you're a part of this to serve. I mean, every step in the kingdom means you serve more people. The kingdom of God is an exercise in downward mobility from serving uh, on one of the teams, you know, maybe the, the worship team or uh, Danny's tech team or the uh, Abby's kids ministry team to small group leadership to pastoring. Every step is actually just a step down to serve more people. But here's the thing, it's even wider than that. You know, if we're people who uh, belong to Jesus, we're people of the kingdom, and we want to see our, uh, the kingdom break into our workplaces and into our schools and into our families and our neighborhoods and our communities, this principle still applies. It's not just a church principle. You see, the kingdom comes as we humble ourselves and serve those around us. You see, service is the posture of one who belongs to Jesus. We serve because our master serves. And so we don't just do it in church. This is a great place to start. It's like training wheels. It's a good place to get going. But we ought to be people who live lives of service, that everywhere we go, we serve. That when we show up to work, we show up to serve. That if we have a position of leadership or authority in our, our workplaces or in our schools or in our homes, we do so as one who serves. Friends, this is the posture of kingdom people. We're people who serve. And it seems easy to say that, but it's harder than we might imagine. I want I just want to close uh, with this thought. You know, I began last week by saying that we had to get the order right. Like this two-part sermon, this worship and service, that we had to get the order right. You remember that? We have to get the order right. And I said last week that worship comes first. And this week, service comes second. Here's why. Let me just tell you why. Because if we don't start with worship, Jesus' teaching here will break our souls. Friend, if you don't start with worship, trying to serve people the way the kingdom calls you to will break your soul. It's so easy to put ourselves on the throne, and when we do that, serving becomes a way to get something for ourselves, that we serve people to use them. So we serve people so that they owe us or they'll pay us back. We serve people so they can put in a good word for us. We serve people so that they'll give us what we want. And if I've put myself on the throne, then I'm only serving so that I'll get something. And if I'm only serving so that I'll get something, then I'll only serve those who can pay me back. I'll only serve those who will be grateful. I'll only serve those who, who, in some sense, would worship me for what I've done. 
Give me all the laud and honor that I'm due for having served them. And if I don't get what I believe I'm due, then I'll give up serving. It'll blow up my soul. Friend, the only way we can serve the way Jesus calls us to, the only way we can endure suffering the way Jesus tells us to plan on, is if we begin by worshiping Jesus, exalting Him to the highest place, lifting Him up as King, worshiping Him as King, worshiping Him as the only one who is worthy of all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. The only way we can serve Him the way we are called to is if we first worship in the way we were designed to. Only then are we oriented appropriately so that we can serve selflessly. Friend, if this is at all about you and me getting the glory, it'll crush us. But if we worship Jesus and if all of our service is about Jesus getting the glory, friends, then we can take the appropriate posture. That's how we pursue wholeness. We worship and we serve. Friend, I believe God would invite us to become more and more deeply worshipers of Him that we might also then become deeper and deeper servants of Him. And I would encourage you, friend, to take a step toward that. Maybe it's a step of surrender. Maybe today you just need to surrender. Maybe it's today you need to offer a sacrifice of praise. That you need to worship. You need to see Jesus on the throne. And friend, I'm convinced that if we see Jesus on the throne, that, that service is what pours out. That we're compelled to serve the world the way Jesus did. Friend, would you become a worshiper and would you become a servant? that we might pursue wholeness with authenticity.